Hi, my name is Diewald Kirsten and I'm a photographer based in South Africa. I've always had a huge passion to connect with people from all walks of life. And the national lockdown has forced me to do that. I've had to come up with new and interesting ways of connecting with friends and connections and people that I've always wanted to connect to. Hence, this podcast. I'm doing daily live shows on my Facebook page where I talk to new and interesting people. And these I will be converting to podcasts that you can listen to on your own time. So please stick around and uh, love to hear your feedback. Good morning, everybody. And um, yeah, a little bit of a short notice one this morning, but uh, right, here we are. This morning, I am chatting to a very well-known journalist in South Africa. And I think everybody that buys the outdoor magazine, VAG or Go, has probably seen Toast's name in there. Um, he's, he's traveled all over, and I think um, he's got some interesting stories to share. So that's why I contacted him to see if he would be keen to come on. And luckily, luckily Toast was keen to, to come and chat to me. So yes, um, I hope everybody's keeping sane. Uh, so we go. Last night's chat with Daniel was really cool, even in case you missed it. Um, please go and check it. it it's, it's in the um, in the video list from last night. And um, yeah, so let's see what we're going to chat about today. Hello. Yes, how are you? Good. Thank you. Thank you. Can can you mooi hear and alles and mooi see in your words? Ek hoor en sien. Okay, wonderlijk. Jou, jou stream klink actually baie mooi skoon. So dit is, jy het seker fantastische internet waar jy is. Die internet is alright. Ek, ek weet net nie of, of my wasmachine gaan plaan. Ek <laughs> denk jy my kantoor wat borrel daar so, maar ek het dit nog nie opgetel op die, op die sound na die tijd. So ek denk ons is fine. Graag so. <laughs> uh, Toos, wil jy Afrikaans praat of Engels? Het maak nie vir my saakie. Net, net soos jy wil. Het, wat jy ook al verkies, ek gee ook jou my. Ek denk as ons het Engels doen, dan kan ons kan een paar ander mense ook daar luister wat ons wat ons Ja, so um, Toast, I think most people in South Africa, like I said that that reads the Vag or Go magazine has seen your name before. So, um, I think what I'm curious is how did you, what's your history? How did you get to where you are today? Uh, yes, like, well, I, I studied journalism. I, I'm from the Eastern Cape originally. I, I was born in Craddock, went to school in uh, neighboring Somerset East for most of the time. And then I went to university in Grahamstown at Rhodes, where I studied journalism. That was always something I wanted to do ever since high school was to be a journalist and work in media and with magazines and photography and, and that. Um, you know, I was always that guy who was, uh, you know, not not playing rugby, but taking the video of the rugby or uh, the guy behind the camera um, being the editor of the school newspaper, as small as it was, um, was always very exciting to me. And and then I studied journalism. Uh, so I did a, a, a B-Journ degree, as it is called, um, at Rhodes. And then um, ever since that time, because I, you know, to sort of explain how I got to work at Vach and Go, I almost have to take the story back then, um, not just because of what I studied, but because of what I did at the time, I think. I um, I started doing internships, which is something they always encourage you to do when you're a student. 
Um, but I did a lot of them, or several of them at least, um, some with SABC TV journalists down in Port Elizabeth, um, good old Mike Proctor-Sims, some might remember his name from TV news back then, and um, and then most of them at the newspaper, usually at the Burger. The Burger um, then had a, a bigger um, Eastern Cape-based office down in Port Elizabeth, um, and of course down in the Western Cape and Cape Town, the main offices are. And I did internships at both, usually as a photographer, because photojournalism was my speciality as, as I studied. But what really happened was that I met people in that time. So people who worked at the newspapers um, and in different divisions at Media24, you know, as it is in a big company, as uh, Wagen goes part of Media24, someone might start at a, mag at a newspaper and they might eventually end up in management or they might end up editor of a magazine or whatever it might be. And some of those people who I met started Vach magazine in 2004. Ban Buenz was the founding editor. And they were a group of, of largely newspaper journalists who saw this gap in the market and decided to start an Afrikaans travel magazine simply catering for what was already an existing big Afrikaans travel uh, market audience. Um, Go Magazine started two years after that, um, I think August or July 2006 was the first uh, English version, Go. It's, uh, they are identical magazines, it's considered the same magazine, um, just because we also felt there was, there's obviously our big competitors always been Getaway Magazine, um, but there was a market for something slightly different in the English market as well, uh, which is why uh, uh, we started an English version. So I had been Working as a freelancer just before that, I was I'd moved down to Cape Town from from the Eastern Cape, and I did all sorts of photography and writing jobs, um, supplying you know everything from CD reviews for websites, taking photographs of music festivals, music, arts and cultures. Also something I I used to photograph a lot. I do a bit less of it these days, but um, and then by chance. I'd actually, I'd gone overseas in 2003, the year before Bach started, uh, to go teach English in South Korea. And I had, uh, it was largely to save up some money, buy a digital camera. That was just about the time when your DSLR, your digital cameras became, the entry levels became a more affordable. And um, I remember when I was still a student, when the very first uh, Nikon, was it called a D1? I think it was called a D1, came out. And our department bought one. Um, because, in, so this would have been about 1999, I think. And it cost something around 60,000 Rand back then. That's how yeah. much it cost. So, and that's something we forget these days. We complain about the price of cameras, but those very first almost prototype cameras, top of the range ones, were ridiculously expensive. Um, so I'd saved up some money not to buy a top of the range camera, but just to buy a digital camera I could use for work, which... Um, I went to Korea, I saved up some money, you know, came back, I could buy a laptop, you know, all these things freelancers need. Um, but sometimes it's difficult to make the money while freelancing to buy yourself all this gear. Uh, not even that I ever really needed a lot of gear. And I bought a Nikon D70 uh, digital, which at the time was a really solid uh, uh, sort of mid-level mid digital camera. Um, and then just at this time, unbeknownst to me, uh, while I was in Korea, the talks had been happening for uh, a VAG magazine to start up. And I, I knew Ban Boens, he knew me from my time doing internships or 
Sometimes I filled in, say, if one of the, the Burgos photographers went on maternity leave or something like that. So he knew about me, he knew I could write, and he knew I could take photographs. And that was exactly the kind of freelancer they were looking for at the time. So I wasn't full-time staff for the first two years. I only joined full-time when, um, when Go started. Actually, then there was a position available. So the first two years, 2004, 2005, 2006, um, I freelanced for Vech uh, with this D70. Uh, it did uh, you know, very good service for many years, that camera. And I traveled around South Africa. You know, I would basically go into the Vech office once every couple of months or so, and they would hand me the keys to uh, uh, our company or their company car at the time was the Toyota Condor, which also they had two of them, served them very well for many hundreds of thousands of kilometers. And I would be sent off to... KZN, you know, for two or three weeks to go do stories on, say, battlefields or this game reserve or that trail or that town or whatever it was. I'd have a whole list of assignments to do, come back, write those. And eventually, um, you know, obviously a lot of my articles was were used and, and they were they were happy with them. So it, it was kind of relatively easy for me to then get the job at Go Magazine. So that was 2006. And, and since then, I've been there. I, I, I always thought... Um, you know, I'll, maybe I'll do this job for five years and then do something else. But sometimes you, you just have to step back a little bit and realize, hang on, this job that you've got is a really amazing job. Um, not only does it take you places where you, you know, you see your country and neighboring countries and parts of the continent that otherwise um, would be very difficult to do um, and, and potentially expensive. You know, for most people, a holiday is something you go on once a year. And a big holiday might be something, or big uh, kind of overland holiday might be something you do once every four years. Um, and here I was, uh, still am, um, and this is my job. So I've been very privileged. And um, I realized at some point that there might be other jobs somewhere out there that I might also enjoy. And maybe there are jobs that I might even earn more money at. But um, I I love my job. And I, I've also... Um, realized how important it is um, your colleagues the people that you work with and I've been very very um, lucky for years um, just incredible people I've worked with some have come and gone many people who work at that have been there for a long time because we all love our jobs and we're all very passionate about what we do and a large part in that again is played by our readers because we don't just have readers who are who are faceless and and unknown to us um, you know, it's not just someone who buys our product and they, they go off and we never hear from them. We speak to our readers all the time. We engage with them on Instagram. VAX Instagram is an account I largely run. Uh, we engage with them on email. We engage uh, with them in the magazine. We publish reader stories, reader photographs, reader letters, obviously, in the magazine. Um, and, and that has almost grown over the years. The the percentage of reader content representation, if you want to put it like that, um, is growing almost all the time because it's become much easier for people. Uh, I just spoke about the early days of digital photography now. Um, and these days you don't even need an entry-level digital DSLR camera to, to, to be able to take a photograph that is publishable in the magazine. We publish photographs taken on smartphones all the time. And, um, you know, you might not be able to use it as your cover photograph or a, or a double page spread in the magazine, but you certainly can use it um, at least sort of actual size in the magazine. And because everyone's got a smartphone, 
everyone's got a camera. So your the number of contributions that you receive um, has just grown over the years. Um, you obviously we still get you know you get other contributions. People send you ten thousand words of their recent holiday, you know, in Botswana or in the Kruger. Um, and from that, we, we often make articles and, and, and um, pieces for the magazine as well. And I love that part of the job as well. I um, just recently, uh, the magazine went to print just now, our, um, what is it, our May edition, which will, uh, it's been slightly delayed due to lockdown printing wise, but is being printed now and will be on shelf, I think the 27th of April. The cover yeah. story is a, is a Kruger uh, National Park uh, story. And Kruger being one of the destinations our readers are, are, are very passionate about, especially people who live in the northern half of the country who are lucky enough to, to, to have it close by. It's in a way we are on the Western Cape. It's quite far. Uh, but even in the Western Cape, and some of the stories that I included in this um, Kruger Park story are from the, the Western Cape and readers in the Western Cape. And the whole article consists of... Um, Readers, reader stories. So it's based around great photographs that they've taken in the Kruger, a specific scene. And then I interviewed them just using email, uh, back and forth, a few emails, and 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 they tell their story, not just what happened in that incident, but but why the Kruger is such a special place to them, um, because it is different. The, the Kruger and the Khalakhari are, are certainly the two of our big parks that that we get far more contributions from. Than, than any of the other parks. Um, I mean, they are legendary, uh, you know, worldwide kind of iconic parks and, and very different. Um, luckily, the Kruger and the Khalakhari, two very different experiences. And our readers go there all the time. That's why it's always fully booked when you're trying to get into a, a specific race camp and you've left booking till too late. Um, and some people are there every weekend. Um, people who might live nearby in Hazy View or just nearby in Pumalanga pop in there all the time. And some people go there for extended periods of time to the Kruger. People might go for seven, ten. Um, there are some of the readers who write about they're now retired and they've decided they go for 21 days at a time. And what they do every time they go to the Kruger is they start in the north or the south and they drive the entire length of the Kruger. And that's how they do it. Um, so the amount of, of incredible content, or content, content in, that I can't get from sitting in my you know room in Cape Town, certainly. Yes, I can go up and and our assistant editor Esma Marnevik, who she does a lot of our Kruger stories. She goes up there at least once a year, um, and when and more if we need to do a, a you know special edition on the Kruger, which we sometimes do. But for a lot of the time, really, our readers do all this incredible work that might just sit on their Facebook page or on their own blog. And, um, and I find it very exciting that we can share those stories of theirs in our magazine in printed form. It also obviously gets used digitally and um, on our online platforms. And then there are all these alternative little platforms like, like Instagram as well, which is not even a, certainly at this stage, it's, it's not a commercial platform for us at all we we sell sort of sell very little using that um, but it is simply a place where we interact with readers and see what they are photographing and and I often follow up from there I might see someone posted a great picture say from the Kruger um, and a few of these contributions I sourced through Instagram so I'm scrolling through I'm following people who I see hang on you know this guy uh, takes a lot of pictures in the Kruger or the Khalakhari and I start following them and and 
six months from now, we might, you know, need a Khalakhadi story. And I'm actually already working on that one. Um, and I remember, oh, you know what, I've, I know this, this person. She takes great uh, uh, raptor pictures that I've seen on her profile. And I go, I follow up, I send a DM. And in that way, we've, we've in the past, we have sourced in the past couple of years, at least three or four of our, of our cover images have, have come from readers um, that we have sourced through, through Instagram. So I think that this and many other reasons um, explains why I'm still very happy in my job. Sorry, that was a very long answer to your very simple question. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, and, and I think it gives, it gives great context to how everything works. So, um, but obviously, like you said, you've got a job that a lot of people want. So I, I presume there's a lot of the, the young Instagram rock stars knocking on the door, trying to get into, into your shoes um, on a regular basis. So uh, is, is it like that? Is it not like that? Um, um, I think there are, there are certainly a lot of opportunities uh, for young people. You're talking about sort of Instagram rock stars or at least the Instagram generation, if you want to call it that. Um, but my sort of encouragement for, for people who work, you must also remember that, that I work in quite an old-fashioned medium. Um, I'm trained as a journalist. I write articles. They're often long articles. It goes through a process of, of being edited by different people. We have copy editors, sub-editors, people who do final proofreads. I have an editor I answer to and so on. It's, it's a very um, specific environment. And the result is that we – do I even have a – yes, I have a magazine. Yes, that, is that we make a, a magazine. It's, a, it's, you know, this amazing, thick, uh, well-printed, like beautifully illustrated magazine, big photographs and so on. But there's a whole other universe of how you can certainly get travel content out there. And I, th I still think, especially as, um, not just as a younger person, but if you think differently um, and you're not, um, and, and you, you, you can easily be an independent, you know, media maker, you know, whether you, you could be that Instagram rock star who, you know, you have all these followers, that, that's an audience. You know, if you have on Instagram, if you have, five or 10,000 followers, and, and certainly some of the people I think you're referring to have, have more, um, then you've got an audience. And, and if you find a way to speak to them, um, you can add as much value and in a very different way to what I can do um, using quite traditional means. Um, you know, video content is something that, that we use in a way, but certainly not as as well as as we can. We, we have a TV program, we have Vach Achterpaya, that's on Via TV currently. Um, and but again, that's quite a traditional TV show. You know, we go out with two camera guys and myself and my colleague Sophia von Tark travel around for a month and we film a series of 13 programs. Those get uh, produced and put out and then broadcast on uh, DSTV, uh, which you know these days, I mean. I certainly don't own a TV anymore, but I watch it on my laptop um, yes. or on my phone. Um, but still, it's quite a traditional way of making TV. But if you're making uh, an incredible, cool, you know, you might only need a GoPro and, and uh, you're shooting cool action stuff, uh, uh, you know, mountain biking or whatever it might be. And there are people on Instagram doing amazing stuff like that. You can... You don't even need to go to film school anymore to do this stuff. You know, yes, you will learn valuable uh, things at film school. 
uh, or a journalism school, certainly. Um, but for, for some, you just need to go through a few YouTube tutorials. Um, and I've certainly seen work done by people who, I know this person has not necessarily gone to journalism or film school or this or that, but their work's incredible because they've put the time and dedication into it. And, and, and that, I think, will ultimately still make the difference. Because I'm not saying that everyone just, you know, everyone who waves a digital, like a, a smartphone around in, you know, press record will make a great video because that everyone can do, but there will still be a difference between what is really good quality and what hits home and what speaks to an audience in the language that, that, that they are speaking. And um, so weirdly to answer your question, we don't get a hundred emails every week from young budding travel journalists who want to, you know, um, move in and, and become part of our team. We get interns all the time. And um, and some of them we we end up working with in years after that. Some might even you know be employed by us down the line, um, but we have a very slow and low turnover of staff um, because people are happy in their jobs. And um, so so we we do, we we don't often employ new people. That is that is very rare for us to do. We have a very stable work uh, group of people at the moment, but we always need people. We need people especially because we are Western Cape based and yes, we do travel, our journalists travel, but it's always very useful to know people who live in Bloemfontein, in Pretoria, in Pumalanga somewhere, in KZN. All these places are, you know, a thousand, thousand five hundred kilometers from where we are. So if we know someone and, and we have people who work uh, with us uh, based in Pumalanga, we have a couple of people in KZN uh, Willem van der Berg, who now works for Landbouw Week, but um, he was our person in Bloemfontein for, for years and did amazing work for us. Um, so we're always looking for people. It is a rare and, and quite difficult combination, actually, to find, if we're talking specifically about magazine work now, to find someone, because we like to employ a freelancer who can write and take photographs. And those two things, and, and, and it's not just, in this case, you know, a short caption for a for an Instagram post. We're asking you to go to a region for two, three, you might be there for five, six, seven days, depending on what the assignment is and, and what kind of, you know, the region you are focusing on. Is it just a, you know, a farm stall is something you can research and, and photograph in an hour. Um, a town is something you might need two or three days for. A hiking trail, you'll have to do the entire hiking trail. That can be five days. And if you're traveling to a neighboring country, you're going to be on the road for two or three weeks. So, you, so you're asking someone to be able to be an, independent traveler because we we only send one person um you need to plan logistically you need to think about where you're going you need to plan your time you know you can't spend three weeks just doing one story um so and then you need to process all that information you're going to have you know notebooks full of stuff you're going to have hours of of recordings on your phone uh you're going to have thousands of photographs to go through we don't want, you know, your raw material. We want your polished product. So you then need to be a good enough writer and editor of your own work to give us that concise 600 words, 2,000 words, max 3,000 words in, in the medium that we mostly uh, work in, um, and photographs that are in the style um, that we like to publish, uh, which is normally our style is quite straightforward. We don't uh, um, edit extensively in, in Photoshop and, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quite plain, our style. Um, so that, to find the right person is actually weirdly quite difficult 
world. You might find someone who's an amazing photographer, but they're just not a writer. And yes, we might employ that person, you know, for photos, but, um, but ideally when we want to employ a travel journalist to go to a place, we send one person, they come back with everything. And these days that, you know, even includes um, shooting some video for us. So it's quite difficult to find that person. I know people are out there and, and um, I want to encourage people to always um, contact us. We don't know you there. We might see you on Instagram or somewhere, but email me, you know, um, we might not be able to employ you. We might not have an assignment for you right now. We might have to try you out first and see how you write. Are you a good writer? How's your photography? Um, but at least I have a folder in my like enormous inbox where I file those people away. I know the assistant editor, the editor, we all um, keep tabs of, of people uh, who um, can potentially work do work for us in the future. Um. On, on, on that topic, um, if if there's somebody out there that can do all that kind of stuff, like let's say, for instance, I go visit my parents in Mapumalanga, but I do the panorama route, and I've got beautiful pictures of the waterfalls and all those kind of things, and, and I know I can write a little bit, and I send my stuff in, is, can can somebody do that? And is there is there payment involved from, from backside to somebody that, that just um, sends in a freelance stuff or... A, a freelancer that pitches you a story or something like that? You can certainly do that. We have, uh, there are types of content in the magazine that we don't pay for. Those are normally, um, sometimes it's difficult to, to figure out uh, who the person is sending you stuff. So if readers are simply submitting uh, stories for, there are specific sections in the magazine. Obviously, we don't, you know, if you're just sending us a letter and we publish your letter, uh, we're not paying you for that. You know, you are sharing that with us. The yeah. same with our, there's a specific area in the magazine section called uh, Reader Story. Uh, the Reader Story, sometimes you get a voucher, sometimes there's a prize connected to some of these things, but you're not paid for that story. You are submitting it because you simply want to share it and you want to show your story in, in the magazine. And there are a few other sections like the Mensis Lenser, the Take Your Pick, the Reader Photos. Um, that is often sometimes a bit of a competition. You can win something. Sometimes there isn't even a prize, but people still simply want to share it. So you're not getting paid for it. Um, and then our other section called uh, With My Own Eyes, Met My Were, which uh, is about uh, sort of incredible wildlife sightings that usually we also don't pay for. Uh, it depends. If, if, if I communicate with someone, I realize, well, this person I'm, I'm communicating with is actually a journalist and this is how they make their livelihood. Obviously, then I'm going to pay you. But um, if you're simply submitting this and, you know, you couldn't be bothered about the a yes. couple of hundred or thousand rand that you might earn from it because you, you know, a medical doctor or a lawyer, this is a small change for you, but you would like to share your, your story in the magazine. Um, so there are all those that we don't pay for. But uh, for people who are freelancers, people who are, make their living this way, you can certainly submit it uh, to us. There is obviously the danger that you are submitting something to us that we are that we've just published, you know, so that your example of the panorama route. So that is, you know, it's a very well-known uh, tourism area and uh, we might've been there recently. We do write about places over and over again because you need to revisit the garden route every couple of years. You need to revisit Kruger all the time. You need to revisit the panorama route all the time. So um, you might need a fresh spin on it. Like, will this article, like, what is your angle? Like, will it just be about the waterfalls? You know, six best waterfalls 
of the panorama route. That's already a little concept that you can pitch to us. And, and often it's a good idea that before you go out and spend two, 2,000 brand of your own money driving around eating pies at farm stalls and paying entrance fees to go to places and then submitting us a story that we might just not be interested in because we just did it last yes. month or two, or, or two recently. Email us, email the editor or the sub-editor, assistant editor or me, and, um, and just uh, bounce the idea off us. Ask, are you interested? Uh, this is what I plan to do. The, the, the safest way to do it is almost, again, like your example, you're going up to Mpumalanga. Let's say you have family there or friends. So you're going up there in any case. So you're traveling there. The cost incurred is incidental because you are going for a holiday in any case. But while you're there, you're taking all these great landscape pictures of the waterfalls of the panorama route. And then you think, hang on, this could make a cool uh, magazine article. Um, so that, that's fine. You know, you haven't really incurred all these extra costs, but rather bounce the idea off us first to see if we would be interested. So you don't waste your time, um, yes. so to speak. Um, and then, yeah, so, so we do use freelancers. Um, you can send ideas to us. Um, yeah. Okay. And um, yeah, that's, that's quite interesting because um, often people don't know where to get the content out. So they post it on their Facebook and it gets shared 10,000 times and, and it actually goes out for, for free, if you want to call it like that, the people that people see it. And a lot of people also don't mind it. But if, if you've got a great story and you can write, is that it can be submitted to a publication somewhere. And like you said, um, I, I know that magazines print um, at 150 DPI, you don't need uh, a 1DX Mark III with a 100 millimeter lens to to get a printable photo in a magazine. That I, I and I think a lot of people don't know that as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. You, you're right about what uh, as far as the gear goes. Like you don't need. <coughs> excuse me. You don't need top of the range stuff. I mentioned the cell phones earlier. I mean, if I just quickly glance at uh, our recent April edition. You know, it ranges. Like some people have a top-of-the-range Canon, other people have a, you know, a mid-range Nikon, uh, like an entry-level camera, and others just, it's a cell phone photo. It, it really doesn't matter. And the best camera is still the one you've got in your hand. That's, that's the, classic, the classic rule, yeah. But what I maybe should add here is, and this is also very important, don't just send us something if you've never read the magazine before. <laughs> The better you know the magazine, yeah. the better you will know what we publish. Um, you know, if you send us an article about, uh, uh, let's say something that's kind of borderline, but let's say uh, you have driven a Harley Davidson from Cape Town to Joburg. Okay. So it's a motorbike story. Now, we do occasionally publish motorbike stories, um, but it's a bit of a difficult one because it's not what we always publish, right? Like you won't, you'll page through our magazines and you'll very occasionally see a motorbike in there. A motorbike story can be a great travel story, right? So, so make sure that when you pitch that idea, it's, it's, it almost fits into a certain gap in the magazine. So, so what would be an easier thing, say, than a motorbike story would be you are pitching a... Um, you are camping through the Northern Cape. Um, 
uh, you know, in five provincial game reserves that are little known and, and, and you are going there and exploring them and showing how affordable it is and what incredible things you can see, what value for money you can get. That's yes. more our language, where it's something like Harley-Davidson is quite exclusive. Yes, obviously some of our readers will own one. And yes, you can write a great story about it. But most people go, oh, well, I, I'm not a motorbike person um, and, and I certainly can't afford a Harley. So is this story for me? But that camping story with someone just driving through the Northern Cape with, uh, you know, he's bucky and he's, he's, he's trying to see, you know, what can my hundred rand get me? Um, yeah. What incredible nature experience can I get for, for, uh, for my money? So that sense of affordability is important to us, for example, you know, Luxury lodges is something else that we write very little about because we, um, at the magazine, our policy has always been from the start, um, and this is it's relatively rare in, in in travel journalism is that we, as a magazine, we pay for everything we go and do. There are very odd uh, certain exceptions, but when I go to Namibia, um, let's say okay, let's take a real life example. I was last in Namibia in November 2018, and I. I was in Namibia for almost, well, I was a little bit in, in Zambia, um, uh, Zambezi River area, and a little bit in northern Botswana as well. Sort of Caprivi, Strip, Zambezi region, that area. And I was there for about three weeks. So that includes driving from, from Cape Town. It was, I was, yeah, it was probably longer than three weeks, including the drive. Um, and in that time, I, I think, and only recently, in fact, there's still an article in the... May issue that will be on shelf 27 April. There's still an article in this May. Remember, I did the story or the research in November 2018. Obviously, you update some of the research that need to be updated, depending on what kind of story it is. Um, but I've been writing stories since then um, from that trip. And I think if I remember correctly, more or less, um, between our monthly magazines and our special Namibia edition that is on shelf now, and our special Botswana edition, the last of which we, uh, that came out last year, September, October, there were some stories in there as well from that trip. So I've probably done five, six, seven, not even sure, articles from that trip. Now, so that's, uh, so let's say it was 21 days that I was on the road. Let's say I did seven stories of various lengths. Um, so that's every three days while I was on the road, I did a story. Uh, obviously, I don't do it while I'm there. Some of it are right there, but most I come back. But you need to think about how you're budgeting for your trip and how you're spending your money. And this is all important when you know when you also go off and do a story. So I, but while I'm there, I know where each of these stories will will fit in, and I'm thinking of the budget. I can't just stay in the lodge that costs two thousand rand a night every night. I might, on the odd occasion, stay in that lodge, but that's going to be one night out of twenty-one. I can assure you. Most of the rest of the time, I'm staying in my little two-man tent, which is in this very Dermakar room that I'm sitting in behind me. Um, and I pitch my own tent. I make my own food. Occasionally, I will eat at the lodge when I'm tired of my own uh, grub. Uh, and I will spend the magazine's money as wisely as I can. I will uh, camping. Yes, it gets me to the destination. Um, I'll pay to go on a sunset uh, cruise because I know I'll get good photographs. Um, but... At the end of that whole 21 days, let's say, and I can't remember the exact amount, but let's say I spent, uh, I think it was less, I spent less than this, but let's say it was 14,000 Rand that I spent. Um, and I did seven stories from that. So that works out to, it, it only cost me 2,000 Rand a story. That included 
everything. That included my fuel, my food, where I stayed. Um, so to spend only 2,000 Rand while researching and photographing a story, and that story is about the Zambezi River, um, yeah. that's a good way to, to, to spend your money. So, so that part is quite important as well. Like, and and, and um, that's also something you can keep in mind when, when you want to pitch us a story. We're not going for that luxury lodge uh, uh, article, you know, like a lot of travel journalism is based on, on the kind of freebie system where a, the PR company from a certain lodge group emails you as a travel writer. And, and a lot of people make a very good living from this. This is how a lot of travel journalism is. Like, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not the way we do it. And they invite you and your partner for, uh, you know, uh, a long weekend at this amazing Bushveld Lodge somewhere. It's a five-star place. You're not paying a cent, but there's a contract and you write an article about them. Yes. And that that article necessarily will have to be a positive article because otherwise they will they wouldn't have flown you there and treated you to that. So the the bonus of us kind of going more low budget on it, um, or at least um, uh, spending money that you know that we can afford as a magazine. Therefore, we know most of our readers will probably fall in the same bracket. They will also be on a tight budget and they want to go to the Zambezi River, but how can they do so affordably? And we are exploring the ways uh, where they can plan such a holiday. They can get in their own car, drive across our borders into a neighboring country. And, and we've kind of done, uh, given them a heads up, we've, we've done the planning for them. You know, we say, okay, there are these 10 camps and lodges next to the Kabanga River in Namibia, but we say these two or three are the best and these are the reasons. Um, and, and, and I think that's, that's also what's, what has uh, set us apart in a way over uh, the duration of the yeah, lifetime of the magazine so far. Do you, okay, so you, as you say, you, you pay for everything. So you would book ahead saying, all right, on Thursday night, I'm going to be at Yanis uh, Camp, And on Saturday night, I'm going to be at Pizza Hut. And you book all these places. Is it, do you get it that when you get there, the people say, oh, shit, I didn't know it was Toast Kutzer from Vach magazine. It's going to be a, <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to pay for tonight. Are we, get- <laughs> yeah, a lot of, um, depending on what kind of trip it is, I, I don't make reservations in advance. I'll only make a reservation in advance when I know it's really necessary. You know, you can't just go to the Khalakhadi and say uh, at the gate, uh, yeah, I want to go to Norsop for two nights. They'll laugh at you. You know, you, uh, so obviously, and I recently I tried to book for the Khalakhadi and I couldn't. You know, it was it was it's booked. There's there's nothing. Um, of course, now it's nice and <laughs> nice and open, but we can't go there. Um, so for some, uh, like a, a big uh, popular place, Itosha, Kruger, Khalakhadi, certainly those places, and sand parks. You know, you generally don't just rock up at a sand parks uh, a national park and you say I want to stay here tonight. They might have space, but. Uh, it's normally just done with an advanced booking. Those bookings at, at, at a big organization like a, like a, like a national park, um, that's, it's less likely, obviously, that they will know. I mean, my real name isn't Toast in any case, so the name on the reservation says Peter Kutzer. It doesn't say Toast. Um, but um, certainly your smaller operator, so the example I used earlier, November 2018, I'm going up northern Namibia, Zambezi region, Kavango East, I don't think I made any reservations. I, I, I made a couple of arrangements with people. Sometimes it's also purely necessary because of 
where you're going. You know, there isn't some of these small uh, operators, you know, it literally is, it's a one or two person operation. Um, I'm thinking here of a guy called Dan Stevens. So Dan Stevens runs uh, Mashi River Safaris on the Kwanda River in Zambezi region. And he offers these incredible river trips, not just a sunset cruise. He takes you out for the whole day. If you want, he, he takes you out onto the Kwanda River and adjoining floodplain on overnight trips as well. You actually camp out on a, on a river island somewhere. Amazing trips. Now, you can't yep. just drive to the Kwanda, you know, two and a half thousand kilometers from Cape Town and knock on the first tree and say, Dan, are you home? You know, you need to make sure Dan is home. <laughs> so, so I have to contact Dan in advance and say, Dan, this is who I am. Sometimes it, it's, it's made a bit, um, and this is where I have to, you know, um, uh, sort of play the card of the fact that I am from the magazine. You, we obviously try and, you know, we don't really want any special treatment, but, um, but sometimes, obviously, especially that small operator, they, they would sometimes go out of their way to help you do your job. Not necessary, not necessary to make you as comfortable because I'm not on holiday. This is yeah. the important thing to remember. I'm not going to the Kwanda River to just drink beer on the deck and someone's bringing me ice, you know, and ice cream or whatever every now and then. Um, I'm there to work. So if Dan, in this case, let's say his operation, I can't remember if it was like this, but often on a, a boat trip or a game drive even, there's a minimum number of people that makes it profitable for the, the lodge to take you out. So you'll see often you go on um, a lodge website and they'll say game drives cost, say, 250 rand per person minimum four people. Why? Because if it's just one person for four hours driving through the bush, bush and they're only earning 250 rand, that probably doesn't pay the fuel bill and the guide and the entry fee. So that therefore, it, it's scaled like that. Um, on the odd exception, let's say I'm going out with Dan, I'm not traveling with four people. I'm traveling alone. It's great if there might be some other people around, but I can't align all my plans with other people's travel plans. I, I have to go do this work um, independently. And um, so I might ask Dan, is it possible I'm paying you the full fee? He might be offering, hey, I'll do this for free. But I'm saying, no, Dan, this is normally what I tell people. I, I tell them um, it's not our policy to do it. Um, and I love spending the company's money. I'm not spending large amounts of the company's money. Let's also you know, be <laughs> straight up about it. Um, but I'm spending this money because I know I'm going to get a good experience from it that I can write about, that I can photograph, and I can get the, the unique content that will go into our magazine that makes our magazine um, a sought-after item to our readers. So when I'm speaking to Dan up in the Kwanda River, um, I'm asking him, Dan, I'm paying you full price for the day. Um, there, there are no other tourists. If there were, they were obviously welcome to come along, but Dan literally is... It's him and his camp manager sitting under a tree. They, Dan still lives in a tent um, and he's been there a decade. Um, but can we go onto the river? And he'll go, yes, because he sees the opportunity to showcase what he does. He's not doing anything different for me. He's taking me on the same river. We are looking for animals. Um, and he wants to please every tourist who comes there because they are few and far between. Um, yeah, there are sometimes slightly uncomfortable situations where, you know, someone really insists. And this is also just we, uh, you know, in Afrikaans, the, the good word is chasfreid. We, we because sometimes, you know, you're not even at a lodge a group, like a big organization at all. It really is just a, a guest farm. It, it's run by um, 
a farmer and his wife somewhere in uh, the Kalahari and they have a guest farm and I rock up there by myself and they at some point might realize, okay, it all makes sense now. It's that guy from Vach magazine. The guy from Vach magazine can mean anything, by the way, because we, <laughs> my ex-colleague, Ernst Grinling, he, he worked for Vach for a long time. And my even further back colleague, Dana Sneijman, um, who worked, uh, was a very key part of the, the early years of Vach magazine. We don't really look alike, except I guess we, we are all balding, white, middle-aged men. But people confuse us with one another. So I will often get someone approach me and 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 they believe I'm Aaron. So Aaron's wrote this very popular uh, book about the Camino called Elders, or Walk It Off, as the English title is. And people go, oh, I loved your book. And um, I go like, well, I have written a book, but I'm pretty sure you didn't like it because it was really uh, a weird book. And then, but I realized actually they're just talking about Aaron's book. You know, they think I'm Adams and that that I wrote that book. So people, you know, the guy from Vach can mean anything. So sometimes, you know, I arrive at this lonely guest farm in the Kaladi and people just think I'm Donna Sneiman or I'm Adams Grindling or someone else from Vach who, you know, they might have heard about five years ago. Um, and they they might want to uh, um, give us special treatment. And sometimes that chasfreyed of literally the farmer and his wife, jy kan nie mense nie in die gezicht vat nie. Um, is another good Afrikaans uh, expression. Um, and I will insist, uh, let's say, you know, I'm, I'm paying the accommodation. Let's say the accommodation in this guest farm is 300 rand a night, whatever it is. But on the last night, they say, listen, we've noticed that you are just, because people feel bad for you, because I rock up there and I, I have a little plastic, you know, uh, crate standing right next to me. And I pack my food in there for a long trip. You know, I'm, I, when I drive out on on, on that kind of a, a little expedition, I stop at a spa or a pick a place somewhere. You know, I buy some uh, pasta, I buy some sardines in the tin, some whatever tuna. You know, what you know, food I can cook myself. I've got a pan, I've got a gas cooker. But now this <laughs> friendly Kalari farmer, he sees me unpack my stuff, and he's thinking. But this poor journalist, he doesn't even have meat with him. What's wrong with him, you know? So on the last night, let's say I'm there for two nights, he and his wife will invite. They say, listen, please just come have a braai with us. Um, I might offer to pay for it, and they'll laugh in my face because you don't offer to pay for a braai invite in the Kalari. It's just not done. It's rude. (laughs) So I might, you know, if if I happen to have bought a few beers, um, you know, I'll bring beers along or if I... I often, actually, this is something I, I, I often do is I buy a few bottles of wine <laughs> um, on my way out of Cape Town, stop at a farm store, buy three bottles of wine. And, and just to say thank you to people um, who have treated me very well, um, I might, you know, on my departure, I'll say, you know, thanks very much. I don't have much with me, but <laughs> here's a bottle of wine from the Cape or, you know, a nice pack of dried raisins from the Northern Cape or wherever I stopped. I, I do a lot of shopping at farm stalls and, and I buy stuff not just for myself to eat, but to hand out on the trip because some things you you, you know. It, and this this also comes back to I think uh, what I, I spoke about earlier. It's just how close we often get to our readers because that farmer in the Kalari who I'm staying with and paying to stay there, he's also a reader of the magazine. He's not just a businessman. He's not just a faceless entity uh, trading in something or other. Um, he is also a reader of the magazine and, and 
And so when I arrive on his doorstep and he realizes this is someone from Bach magazine, he might think I'm Dana Sneeman, he might think I'm Ernst Grindling, it doesn't matter. Um, but I represent this magazine that he is a fan of and, and that he might have followed and bought from our very first issue in 2004. And that's amazing. You know, we have incredibly loyal readers who, they don't throw the magazines away. You know, they, they keep them. They, they find a way to stack them up somewhere. And when um, they want to go back to the Koukoufelt, you know, they, they look on the shelf and they check on the spine, you know, which one says Koukoufelt and they pull that one out and they read that story again and plan their trip that way or simply, you know, as escapism, read a few of our columns, whatever the case may be. Um, so, so there are these gray areas there where sometimes I'm not paying for something because it's simply rude to pay for it. And, and also, if, if you go to Womiani, that's deep in the Kalahari, and you, st- you stop in Uppington and you phone him and says, well, I'm going to be there in an hour and a half's time. Do you need anything from town? Exactly. And, and, and he says, yeah, freaking hell, bring me some milk and whatever with. Milk, bread and a newspaper. Yes. So yeah. when, you there, what, when you get there, he, he's already, you, you've already impressed him. So now he might take you on an experience that, you would not, that he wouldn't take his normal guest with. Um, yeah, potentially. You know, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm. I don't see this as as bribing the person. That is something totally different. But but you're simply doing that is relevant uh, to the situation. Um, you know, I'm not going to buy. You know, give the receptionist at uh, you know a national parks uh, bookings office. I'm not going to give them a bottle of wine. That's not how it works. But yeah, the farmer in the Kalari might not have seen a bottle of wine from the Cape for six months. So. And if I, I also won't just give him a bottle of wine. He might not be a drinker at all. Um, but if I realize actually this person will probably appreciate this, that's what I'll, I'll give him. So, yeah, it, it, it's and that's and that also um, becomes important when you when you're a freelancer wanting to do work for the magazine. You kind of need to be aware of like you can't just um, as a freelancer um, say I'm I'm here for Vach magazine. If you're not, you know what I mean. Like if you are researching a story on your own steam, we have not commissioned it. Uh, we've actually had issues with this before where we get an email from, you know, a caravan park somewhere and, and they go like, you know, there was someone from Vachia recently saying they're doing an article on us. When will this appear? And then when we ask around the office between our office and Vachre and Sleep, who are, you know, sit just behind us in the same office space usually, we realize, hang on. <laughs> None of us had been to, we haven't been to this caravan park. So someone took a chance and some people have done this, like where they, they arrive at a caravan park and they say, I'm here from Vachre uh, and Sleep or Vach magazine. Um, and then the owner gives them free <laughs> accommodation for the night. And this uh, does, you know, he just does a quick one and, and never writes anything. So you can't obviously go, go and do that. If we commission you to do an article, um, you know, then you're within rights to say, but then you're doing everything by our book. You know, you're paying for the accommodation. We are paying you back for that because we are going to, you know, pay you for the article that we end up using. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, there are all these gray areas and uh, some of the situations are are quite, quite humorous because we, you know, we have to, <laughs> I often laugh about this because you, you know, because we're part of a, a company, you know, they have accountants and, and you have to, when you come back from each, uh, you know, long trip through Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe being a very difficult one, you come back with little slips, you know, because you need to prove 
You can't just say, I'll put in 500 rands of fuel. You have to have the slip. Otherwise, the company doesn't you know, refund you for that. We normally get an advance. So let's say I want to go to Zimbabwe. I know I'm going to be away for two weeks. So I say, for argument's sake, you know, I need 10,000 rand. So the company pays 10,000 rand into my account. And then I have to keep record. And if I end up spending only 9,000 rand, then I obviously owe the company 1,000 rand and they will deduct it off my salary or whatever. But if I spend 11,000 rand, they owe me 1,000 rand and they will you know, pay it in. But now, yeah. not every business <laughs> that you get to will give you a printed out slip like this. You know, Even in Zimbabwe, I've had a uh, um, situation where I filled up at a fuel station in a big town and the person goes, yeah, but they, uh, they can't print out a slip for me. <laughs> and then uh, I'm like, well, you can just write it in those little uh, uh, receipt books. They're like, it's, it's gone. It's gone. That book is gone. And then literally what I do is, this is one of, an example of one of my little moleskin notebooks here next to me. I will, I will write a document. You know, If it's just 50 rand for mangoes by the roadside, pff, I'm never going to get that money back. I'll just enjoy the mangoes. But if it's 500 rand that I've you know, put in fuel, you know, I'll, I'll need to back this up on, on paper. So then I'll write a little statement. I'll write date, location. Uh, this is to certify that uh, this person, me driving this car registration has put in fuel to the value of 500 Rand in Arare signed by a petrol attendant. And I make the petrol attendant <laughs> sign it. And I tear out this piece of pa- <laughs> this page from my notebook. And, um, and I submit that, you know, and that's accepted because it's signed it's dated. But, but some of it's just a joke because obviously that guy that I'm buying Mupani worms from, uh, which I'm eating as a snack, so it's legitimate sustenance for me on the road. I'm not going to ask that guy for a slip and, you know, like so some things fall through the accountancy cracks. What did the accountant say the first time you came back and you gave them one of, the, one of those? <laughs> we get the queries because it. You know, I submitted to our office manager and she, I don't even know the accountants, they're sitting on some other floor as it happens in a big company. So occasionally, weeks later, you know, a query comes back and they go, you know, circle this, what is this? Where did you spend this money? What was this for? And then you kind of have to explain. But it becomes difficult, you know, because what we do and where we go, um, it, it, it gets a little bit unconventional sometimes how we spend the company's money. It's It's not, we're not sitting in business class, flying somewhere and staying in a, you know, a business hotel. And it's, I, so, I, I often laugh, like I, I'm lying somewhere under a tree, you know, I don't even have a tent maybe with me. I'm just sleeping on the ground in my sleeping bag. And I'm thinking the company doesn't know, you know, what I'm, where I'm sleeping tonight in order to save the money. You know, I might be camping tonight because camping is, you know, a hundred rand and staying in the lodge would be 500 rand or thousand rand. Um, but I don't fully appreciate how we, <laughs> how we make this whole exercise an affordable one for them. But anyway, <laughs> quickly. So how did the, how did the, the pitch come about for Weg Achterpaya? Because obviously with you and Aaron's, I think you did the first two um, series. Yeah. Um, but both of you are, are used to being behind computers. It's only your name printed in a magazine and all of a sudden you become presenters. And, and I know the, the, the journalist part is still there because you ask the questions and you get the response from the people. Um, but, but to now become presenters, all of a sudden, um, how, did that, how was that whole 
thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I still hesitate to call myself a TV presenter because we're not those kinds of presenters. We're not those kind of good-looking people who, you know, wear makeup and and deliver their lines perfectly because they memorize. Like we're just not those people. We're journalists, and the good thing is that. Um, that's what they wanted us to bring to that exercise. So, um, again, as a bit of background, Media 24 owns both, uh, or, uh, via TV um, is part of Media 24, and Vech and Go Magazine, uh, we're part of Media 24. So, when they started via, what is it now, three, four years ago? Yeah. yeah. The intention was, or at least part of it, uh, the way I understood it, they wanted to use some of the expertise of their magazine journalists to help them make good television programs. And it was a no-brainer to come to us, being a travel magazine, and ask us to come up with a concept. And it was, I mean, a concept was it's also, it's very likely a concept. It's, it's really simple to come up with an idea for a travel magazine uh, program. You get in a car and you drive around and you explore. So Adams and I, um, we put together a proposal. We said, uh, you know, where we wanted to go. The first one was going to be about sort of southern half of Namibia. Mm. Uh, we worked out a route. Um, our expertise comes in that we know the area, usually, where we're going to, um, and the people and places specifically that we want to interview and, and, and feature because the TV exercise is, is a little bit more um, – time intensive and money intensive than me going by myself for three weeks to Namibia is different for the magazine. I can work on my own time. I can revisit the place. I can go blindly into something and explore it as I discover it. TV doesn't work like that. Um, they've got a schedule. There's a shooting schedule. So every day something must happen. Something must be filmed and something must be content. That's part of a program. So in the example of Namibia, uh, we very unwisely, because we were complete rookies when we uh, conceptualized that program, that series. We series. Say again. It was a brilliant series. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Yes, it it it, it came out really well. But if you do rewatch it, and all of this is on on Showmax, you can you can watch the the back, the past series, especially in the Mobile one. We made a rookie error, for example, that we built in, we planned this whole, and remember, southern half of Namibia, we're talking about a very big uh, stretch of, of earth. We had put no rest days into our itinerary. We we thought maybe, you know, the production company or someone will say, hey, but, you know, when are you taking a break? We just worked out 30 days of nonstop action and driving. Like every day, we're driving somewhere, doing something, interviewing someone, you know, there's an activity every day. So this was rubber stamped, okay, go. So off we go to Namibia. By about day 20, we were so tired, us, the two camera guys. I mean, you, Adams and I were just blabbering, you know, often on camera. And certainly some of the voiceovers, if you ever heard the hours and hours of voiceovers, because all our voiceovers we record while we are on the road, which is part of making it a more sort of budget-friendly production. Um, we were just blabbering and blabbering because we had not had enough sleep. We were so tired. Um, but 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 we learned, you know. So yeah, that's. I mean, that's what we brought to the to the exercise was our expertise as our experiences that we had, you know, previously interviewed some of those people that featured in the Namibia series, for example. We had been to those farms, so we knew what to expect. So we would set up specific, and all the subsequent series have also worked like that. We set up an, an appointment. They say you 
Um, you're a cheesemaker from Clarence. So we know in week three of our free state series, we will be in Clarence and we would like to do a, an, an insert because also the kind of program that Achterpaya is, what works best is when we interview someone in a great location, Clarence, on a farm outside Clarence, and you make cheese and cheese is a nice process to film. Um, what I've learned, because I did not go to film school, is that um, for this kind of TV, what works well is a step-by-step uh, explanation of something, how to make a knife, how to make cheese. So we film your three or four stages of the process of making cheese. And voila, uh, when you edit that down later, it's five, seven or 10 minutes of, of very watchable um, TV. But in order for that to happen, we need to make sure you are there that day and you're making cheese that day. So that's why we make appointments. And occasionally on, on these trips, um, an appointment gets canceled uh, uh, because of bad weather or, or whatever, you know, things happen. And then we have to think on our feet and we have to come up with content for, let's say that afternoon that we had planned to do, Clarence is a good example. Again, we had planned in Clarence to shoot um, hot air balloon ride. I mean, what a beautiful thing to film, you know, incredible visuals. You can, you know, see how this flame is going to go up and then we'll be up in the air and have this amazing view. A, the guys forgot about our appointment. They have to drive through from Joburg, Green Clarence. B, they say, okay, we'll be there at two o'clock in the afternoon. Then we do this in the afternoon. They get there. The wind is too strong. We can't go up. Now we've wasted almost an entire day of, you know, but we already improvised that morning. We're like, okay, well, this morning the shoot is, is, is cancelled. These guys have forgotten. They've forgotten to come with their hot day balloon. So instead, um, look around. What's happening in Clarence? Um, you know, so we find a cool coffee shop and we decide this wasn't part of our plan, but we love the vibe in this coffee shop. These people who work here look interesting. Let's interview them and just talk about coffee and uh, Clarence as a tour tourism destination, whatever. And that way we, we make content um, thinking on our feet. But most of Achterpaya is done on a very tight schedule. Now with rest days built in, we have one rest day a week. And um, our budget of time, which is related to money, uh, is normally 30 days. So the one that's on TV right now, Achterpaya Bosfeld, was filmed basically during October last year. Um, that's 13 episodes of 20, 22 minutes each, which doesn't sound like a long episode, but there's quite a lot of uh, content packed into it. Um, so we work it out to approximately two days per episode that we need to film. That includes the travel time. You need to drive to the next town or sometimes it takes a while to get to what you want to film. You know, you might want to film uh, rock art, but the rock art isn't next to the road. It's uh, 45 minutes walk easy enough for me. I'm not carrying anything but the camera guys. I've got heavy cameras, tripod, whatever it is. Um, so all this needs to be um, uh, accounted for in, in this kind of time budget. But uh, we've kind of worked out a, a formula and uh, myself and Sophia van Tark, who now uh, presents it with me, uh, we, uh, yeah, we still do all the research. We plan the itinerary. Again, that's our expertise. And we, we don't just use what we know. We also use what um, our other colleagues know. Uh, we if we go into the bushveld, I might be drawing on articles written by four, five, six other colleagues over the years. And uh, a good example is the episode that's on this week. So it'll be on tonight at 7.30 on, on VIA. Uh, we visit these guys, these uh, twins who make vodka in, in the Waterberg near Lepalari. And uh, I had never met them before, nor Sophia. 
Um, but one of my colleagues, um, I think Ivan Nodir, I think he was there about a year or two ago, and this featured in our magazine. So that obviously, you know, ticked on my radar when we were going to that part of the world. Um, I thought, well, let's follow up with these same guys. Ivan interviewed them, so they already know the magazine. They might not know me, but they've met Ivan. Um, and now we are offering to do something different with them. We want to do, you know, we want to film something. So, um, so we have this vast resource of, of uh, previously published material, uh, our journalists who have traveled to all these places. And occasionally when there's a blank spot, we simply do completely fresh and new research. Um, so, um, you know, Sophia on, on this specific shoot, on the uh, Bosfeld shoot, there were a couple of spots that we weren't quite sure what kind of content would we do. We also can't do the same kind of content in each episode. You can't do, uh, you know, if you're doing something on the Karoo, you can't do something on a, a sheep farmer in every episode because then, you know, the series becomes monotonous as a result. You need a mix and a variety of content. So sometimes you realize, well, in this area uh, of the Bushveld, yes, we could do another game farming thing, but we've, we've done a bit of game farms in the series already. So, are there interesting artists? Yes, we find a group of vendor artists who do incredible work, and that's what we'll do an insert on. And a lot of that work is fresh. So you go on the internet, you get on the phone, you email people, you figure out, is this the right person? Will this person work? Are they keen to be part of the TV program? Some people aren't, and then you move on to the next person. Um, so there's a lot of fresh work that happens, uh, just proper, normal journalism work. And then uh, a lot of it is, is done on previous uh, connections that we have with people. Those are often the easiest to do because I know the Groot Mariku part, for example, of um, the Weg Achterkwaaie Bosveld series, I had kind of wrecked about six months before we filmed there. I went up there to do articles for the magazine. I went to Groot Mariku, went to the Zierest area, up to Madikwe, that whole northwest area. And I did articles for the magazine, but at the same time, I did this thinking, I might come back to this person um, making uh, herbal remedies because we want to shoot this for the TV show as well. And I would ask people, would you be keen to also be part of a TV show? Um, and that made going back there last October much simpler. People knew me, they knew what they were in for largely, and they were happy to help us out and assist us um, in doing a shoot. And, and they also know the show by now because it's been it's in season five, I think. Yes, five, yeah. Season five? Um, I wanted to ask you something about that now, um, but yeah, no, it's, I, I, I'll come back to it in a minute. Um, yeah, there's, I've, I've also got one of those passion projects I would love to do one day, and is, I know that you guys have done the Karoo, but to go into the Karoo where tourists don't go, to go to the Tani Tani's that live on a, on a farm that, that bake the best melt that for the, for the bazaar. Yeah, yeah. I still want to go see those kind of people and meet them. And, and I've said to somebody else, the, the stories of that generation is going to die out within the next 15 to 20 years. Because yeah. our, our children, my children, won't, will never know what it was like for the old people, how they lived. My dad grew up in a farm in Uniondale where they milked by hand every morning and planted with donkeys and, and horses and stuff up until today where everything is controlled with the cell phone and those stories are going to die out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that those projects, you know, if you, and this is a great thing that, that almost anyone with an interest in, in that, that sort of story can, 
do in their own time, you know, go on a holiday, go on a road trip and collect these stories, whether you're doing it uh, just as a writing project or just as a photography project or an audio project these days, you know, maybe someone who makes podcasts, um, you take your recording equipment with you, you go record those conversations. It is incredibly important that we document that. The, the nice thing about uh, Vach magazine and Achterpaya is that we don't simply feature uh, tourist destinations. We do write a lot about places that exactly what you're describing now. Uh, it's not a, even a guest farm, um, but we are traveling around. I'll take a real life example again, a uh, story I just filed now. This is for our June issue. So in January, late January, I traveled through the Northern Cape and I'd always been intrigued by a place called Copperton. And if you don't know where Copperton is, I won't uh, you know, blame you. Like you might have seen it without knowing while flying between Cape Town and Joburg, you fly almost directly over Copperton. Copperton is an ex-mining town in the Northern Cape, sort of between Priska and Von Veiksvlei, i.e. middle of nowhere. Um, but I'd never been there. I've been to Priska, I've been to Von Veiksvlei, I've been to Kennard and Carnarvon and the surrounding towns, basically, but not Copperton because it's a very specific destination. But I was curious about it. I looked at it on Google Earth and I see, okay, what's, you know, there's some houses there, some have been torn down, very little info online. There's one guest house nearby, uh, but there used to be a mine, what's there now? You could see there are solar farms. You can see all this on Google Earth, an incredible tool that I use all the time uh, doing research. Um, but I had to go there. So as part of my Northern Cape series of stories, I went to research, I went to Copperton, not even for very long, I was there for, I think, two and a half, three days. Um, and I had made a couple of contacts uh, in advance because I knew it would be difficult to find the right people. But I spoke to someone in Carnarvon who knows that area and he gave me a number or two. And those people gave me contact details for another couple of people. Um, so I had a list of about four or five people in the end, six, um, that I could go and interview. And I used my cell phone, recorded interviews. And these are exactly the kind of stories that you, you're talking about. Not all of the people. Most of the people I interviewed were old people. They were uh, 70, 80, 90 years old. Um, people who um, grew up on farms in, in, in the Copperton district. Some still live on the farm. Some uh, live in Priska where they've retired. Um, so they knew Copperton before it was Copperton. Copperton was only started in the early 70s when they started mining copper there. Before that, it was just a piece of Karoo with sheep farms. So some of these people, they grew up there. So they were born in the 1930s or 40s. So their um, childhood you know, included, you're talking about milking cows and so on, um, or a time when um, you, know, you didn't go to the shop just when you needed clothes didn't go to the shop in Priska. You would do that maybe once a year to buy something really special that you will wear to church. But if you just needed a nighty, your mother made you, you know, she got a piece of material and she made your clothes. She made your underwear. Um, I spoke to this old Tani, Tani Leti Diyagha, and she had the most incredible recollections of, she grew up, she was born in the Great Depression, 1932, incredible stories of of what was normal life to them but to us looking back now seems like hardship um and i mean i almost get goosebumps just like thinking about some of these stories now that she told me and and um and those are the stories you're talking about 
and Tanileti is already 88 years old. So I'm not saying, I've, I've, I mean, other people obviously, will, uh, her children will remember some of these stories and maybe some will write it down. Um, but often we forget our own stories that are close to us, our own parents, our own grandparents. Um, if I think in my own life, all my grandparents have all died years ago. Um, I think my last grandmother died when uh, I was in, in high school. You know, that's, that's 25 years ago um, plus. Um, and I never wrote down her stories, you know, because it wasn't something that I thought of at the time. Um, and, and often the best projects, the personal projects start close to home. Write down your mother or father's story, uh, your grandparents, if you're lucky, you still have them. Sit them down, press record on your cell phone, just let them talk. Um, even if you do nothing with that, you don't have to write a book. You don't have to have a blog site. But record it, write it down. Um, it will mean something to you. It will mean something to the person you interview. And it might mean some something to people who follow you, your own children. Or if you share this in a magazine like, like I will, The Coppertin Story, um, it might mean something to other people who, who have a link to, to that world. Yeah. And, and it's, yeah, it's something I, I say to myself almost on a weekly basis, but I just never get around to doing it. Um, yeah. Uh, just, just one of the last questions I've got for you. What's your workflow like when you're out on these assignments? Because it's, it's such a, you, you get so much info every day that you've got to work through and voice recordings and notes that you take and everything. Do you, mm. do you get home at night, light the fire and just start typing out so that you've, you've got the, the summary of the day stuff? Because obviously if you're traveling for three weeks through Namibia, yeah. you forgot what happened. Um, yeah. you your notes of what happened on the first day kind of thing yeah i've i've only weirdly recently started to record a lot on cell phone um i mean i i would take notes and write down quotes from people um it, because it's very time consuming to sit with an hour's conversation and type it up um yep. that yep. takes 10 hours if i think about the Copperton story i did now it probably took me 12 hours to type up all the interviews i did of which I use a fraction in the article. It's I'm glad I recorded it because I wouldn't have been able to write down everything. It's a combination if you're talking about workflow. Some stories don't require long interviews. The Copperton story um, was people-based. It was always going to be not about how I see that landscape or, you know, it's not a tourist place where I'm going, you know, I'm going into to review a, a putt style or whatever. It's about the people. So I needed to record those. The story consists largely of their words. I'm linking it together in a, in a sensible way. Um, other stories are photo-based. You know, you might fill eight pages in the magazine where each of those eight pages is a full-page picture of a great campsite, and you're writing a short 150-word description of each, some of which you'll be able to remember because you went there, you photographed it, and the facts and figures, the how much it costs to stay there, what times a restaurant might be open, um, what's on its menu, what are the recent prices, what are their contact details, and so on and so on, that I can update down the line. You know, as long as I've got the photograph and I've seen the place and I've decided for myself whether it's worthwhile putting in the magazine or not, I can six months down the line call those people again and say, you know what, I was there six months ago, we're going to use something about your butt style, um, but I need to check a couple of prices with you because, you know, let's say we want to say uh, you're selling rusks, you know, 
the Rusks might have cost 50 Rand a pack when I was there, but it's now 55 Rand. So I want to have the updated one. So a lot you can do over the phone and internet later. Um, so the workflow is mixed. Um, my favorite is what you described where I'm on this long road trip and I get home to my campsite. It might be a, a, you know, a room. It's not always <laughs> under the tree and stars, but I do sometimes sit next to the fire in my camping chair quickly, laptop, especially if I know the story, this article that I need to write is a short article. Let's say it's something that's 800 words or 1,500 words, which is relatively short. And it, it's, it's only about today. Um, this story is, is captured in this one day. It's not something I'm researching for three or four days and visiting. It's about I'm driving from, from this little town down this stretch of river to that town. And I want to describe the route, uh, what I saw, um, obviously, I've taken photographs everywhere on my cell phone, on my DSLR. Um, I might have made a couple of sound recordings as well. Um, but what it's best for that kind of just experience, experiential thing to capture the atmosphere of a place. It is best sit that evening. I have notes, but it's obviously fresh in my head. I can almost just write this from the top of my head. And if I missed a couple of you know dates or facts and figures somewhere, you know, I can research that later and just fill that in. But just to get that thousand words, often just the first three, four hundred words of an article, I'll quickly bash out because that gives me the sense of what the direction and the style and the flow and the feel of the article that I'm trying to write. Um, but for the bulk of things, I don't have the time because also while I'm, you know, camping under the tree, I need to make food. I need to make a fire. I need to pitch my tent. All of this stuff takes at least an hour or two hours. Uh, depending on what you're planning to eat. Um, so you don't always have the time or the space or the, um, you know, just to sit and type with a laptop. Sometimes you want to sit at a table because it's just more comfortable to work that way. You can't always sit on your, you know, camping chair, you know, with the vivid monkey over there. Uh, that's fun. But um, sometimes you need a work environment. So what I would sometimes do is, and also what, what a reader might not think about, I might be on the road in Namibia for three weeks, but while I'm on the road, back at the office, right? So I'm working on research for stories that'll be used in the next year, right? I'm working into the future, but in, in, in reality, right at that time that I'm in Namibia, back at the office, they might be editing our latest issue. And in that issue, I might have a story that I had researched six months ago and I've written and submitted and it's going to be published. But they suddenly, now they've done the layout of the story um, while I'm in Namibia. And they're sending me a layout by email and I must write the captions because I was there, I need to write the captions. It's my story. So while I, I might be sitting <laughs> you know, next to that campfire at the Kwanda River, uh, thinking about the Kwanda River every day and then suddenly... In comes an email from the office down in Cape Town and, and I need to write captions about the Mountain Zebra National Park, which I did, you know, eight, six, eight months before that. But that's what's needed right now. So the workflow often includes completely other stuff as well. It's stuff that comes in through my inbox um, that I'm working on. It, it's stuff that the magazine production team, they're working on in the office right at that time. I might even be late on a story. This is the classic. I mean, myself and Adams are probably the worst examples of this. We're going out on the story. You always, you know, promise yourself this time, I will finish all my work before I leave town so that I can just go out and enjoy this, this uh, next trip. 
and then you're not done. You know, that night before you end up not finishing that piece of work and then I'm still writing. This is the worst case scenario, but sometimes it has to happen. I'm still writing, let's say, my mountain zebra national park story while I'm sitting in Vintuk, you know, in a in a hotel room one morning. I need to go to Itosha today, but ah, first, two hours, let's sit and finish the story. And so the it's a bit... Uh, um, some journalists are certainly more organized than I am, but the nature of, of the work, I find it, it, it demands uh, you to to kind of surf the wave. Like it's haphazard um, and it's it seems to come from all directions sometimes. The important thing is that you go there to gather the story, that you see things for yourself, that you gather authentic and, 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 and uh, true information as far as you um, can gauge it to be true at least. Get authentic sources get good photographs, photographs that can be used for a variety of purposes. Um, you know, you need to think all the time also, and this is something that a freelancer perspective must also be aware of. The better you know the magazine and the kind of photographs we publish, you know, the, the picture on the cover isn't always necessarily the most beautiful picture, but it's the most functional photograph to go onto a cover because a cover image has to have all the text on it and so on. Um, and while I'm out there, I need to be thinking about these things all the time. I need to think, how would a designer like to use this photograph? I can't just take it the way I feel it looks pretty. Yes, take that too. But take, you know, the different composition. You take a picture with the person in this part of the frame. You take a picture in this part of the frame because text might have to go over here or text might have to go over here. Look, nice white space behind me. That's probably the photograph I need to be taking here. So all this stuff you need to think of all the time and um, obviously, the more you do it specifically for uh, one magazine, the better you understand its style. Um, but that is the best advice I can give to people who want to submit material to us. Know our magazine backwards. Like, the better you pitch something for us for a very specific part of the magazine, the easier it is for us to accept it and use it. Yeah, no, it's, um, I've, I've worked with other journalists on other publications and it's it's always interesting to see what the kind of workflow is how they do it because when when I on the one magazine we'll we'll have lunch and Marek will have a laptop out and she'll already start typing out all the stuff that we spoke about that morning just so that she she's got it captured down and she mm. don't have to worry about that tonight because she's she freelances so tonight she was right for other stuff and then you say well, Yanni comes there and says, Sian, you have not eaten proper food for this whole week. You must come ride with us tonight. And you say, <laughs> yeah. Do I come out? <laughs> All yeah, those yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of that. Like you, you don't have the luxury always to sit on your own at night and type up the notes um, because part of the job uh, goes on. You know, the, the light might have gone. You're not taking photos. The sun has set. Um, but your engagement with that farmer or your subjects, the people you happen to, you're sharing space with them. Sometimes it's not even a, you know, a, an organized uh, tourism, like a guest farm or something where you have your own place. Uh, recently in the Northern Cape, uh, not the Copperton story, but another one I did, I physically camped out in the felt with uh, the farmers. They are nomadic farmers in that Bushmanland area. Um, and, so I'm not going to sit on my own in my own tent and type up my story. You know, I'm I'm part of their life for the, the 48 hours I'm there. Um, I'm eating with them. I'm chatting to them. They are as interested about me as I am about them. And it would be rude of me just to say, I need to go sit over there on a rock now and type up notes. 
I'm trying to record everything and to remember and get the photographs. The photographs, obviously, you know, kind of non-negotiable. You've got to have usable photographs that you can use for years to come. Uh, the information you can update um, and double check over the phone, over email. Um, you know, if, if I'm missing a bit of a fact, I type up my story and I realize, you know what, I forgot to ask this person what date this happened. Then I give them a call. I send them a WhatsApp. I email them if they are on email and, and I check something. In 90% of the cases, you can do that. But if you don't have the photograph, then you're in trouble. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I think um, I think we should bring this thing to an end. We've, we've been chatting. <laughs> it's fun. I can... With everyone I speak to, I can probably go on for another two or three hours. Um, I've I've had the privilege of having one of my photos on on the cover. Nice, that's a great one. When was that? October twenty fourteen. Hey, it's time for a comeback. Yeah, I've got lots of photos, <laughs> but um, yeah, and and it is. Thank you for the great info. I think. The people that are watching, if there's, I couldn't, it didn't show that there's anybody. Just showed started streaming. Um, if if people want to get all of them, just get um, the email emails in the magazine or on Instagram, and um, maybe there's something that they've got that you need that you that could be used in future, whatever the story is. But the people should just get in in touch with with you guys. There. Yeah, yeah. Please, easy to find me um, on. Facebook, Toast Kutzer, uh, on Instagram at Toast Cards. Yeah. Uh, is at Mensis And uh, my email address is toast at vach.co.za. It's, it's as simple as that. Or, yeah, I don't know, Google it. I'll put all your contact details and all the links and everything in the description anyway. So that people cool. can, can get hold of, of whoever needs to be getting hold of. So, um, Toast, I, I just want to say thank you so much. This has been really interesting, and hopefully one day when all this crap is over, we can meet in the felt together and just have a beer around a fire and talk nonsense like it should be. Like a devil. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again, and have, a, have an awesome Sunday further. Like a you too. Bye. Cheerio. Bye. Bye.